0: may be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4 as we keep making our way through this glorious book and testimony to the grace of Jesus Christ. This morning we come to Acts chapter 4 verses 1 through 12. But before we hear God's word, let us call upon our Lord and ask for his grace to abound in us. Father, we do humbly ask you this morning that you would draw near to us and that you would speak through your word. Pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit as I preach the word of Christ, that you would fill each and every one of us here as we hear the word of Christ. Lord, we know that as the gospel goes forth, it always meets with opposition. And so we ask that you would overcome that opposition now, whether it is in our own hearts, whether it comes through conflict in the church or whether it comes from persecution outside the church. We pray that nothing would hinder the Word of Christ here and now. That it would do what You send it forth into the world to do. That Christ would be exalted And that we would put our faith, our trust, our hope in Him alone. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear the word of Christ to you this morning from Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And as they, that's Peter and John... As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of our God. Now, if you have been following along in this sermon series, you know that in the first three chapters of Acts, Luke has introduced us to the early church as it formed after Jesus ascended to heaven and sent His Holy Spirit to earth. And we've met a people characterized by bold preaching, powerful miracle-working, joyful generosity, devoted worship and loving fellowship, which has resulted in mass conversions. And we may hear about these things and say, sign me up for that kind of Christianity. Give me a church where there's lots of miracles and little conflict with Three-minute sermons that result in 3,000 conversions. But while Luke's description of the early church up to this point has been 100% accurate, it is not yet complete. Because there's another key characteristic he needs to introduce us to. Fierce opposition at every step, the church of Christ is opposed. The opposition comes from outside the church, as we see here in chapter 4. Sometimes it comes from within the church, as we'll see in chapters 5 and 6. But we learn that Christ's Church from its very inception was never free from sin, it was never free from conflict, it was never free from disagreements, and it was never free from persecution. So if you've been reading these first three chapters with rose-colored glasses on, Luke is about to invite you to take those glasses off. Because Christianity is not all rosy. Christianity exalts Christ in a world that stands against Christ. And so Christianity will always be opposed in this world. But what Luke wants us to see, what God wants us to see is that even though the world can stand against Christ, the world can never stop Christ. Jesus will be opposed, but he will never be overcome. And that's what we see in chapter 4, and what we'll continue to see throughout the book. So we're going to begin this morning with the reality that Christ is opposed. But then we're going to end with the reality that Christ is not overcome. And my prayer today and over the next few weeks is that this will prepare and encourage us as we continue to stand for Christ in a world that stands against Him. So in chapter 3 we read about Peter and John performing a wonderful miracle. They heal a man that was born lame, that from birth was, was never able to walk. And as we read, this miracle amazed the people, but it also provided an opportunity for Peter and John to preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while they were preaching and perhaps having follow-up conversations, because if it's already evening when they're arrested, it means they've been at this for three to four hours. While they're teaching, while they're explaining who Jesus is, some priests who were religious officials responsible for temple activities, the captain of the temple who is the second in command in the temple after the high priest and the leader of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees who were, again, influential Jewish leaders in the first century, members of the priestly family. They made up the the aristocracy in Jerusalem. These groups all come together together and approach Peter and John. And the word for come upon them implies hostile intent. They haven't come because they want to hear what John and Peter are saying. They're coming because they want to silence Peter and John. Luke says they were greatly annoyed. It means they were exasperated. We think, what? Why were they so annoyed at Peter and John? Well, first, because Peter and John are teaching with authority in their temple, in, on their turf, and they haven't gotten permission to teach. They're annoyed because Peter and John are teaching about the resurrection from the dead. This upset the Sadducees Because you learn later on the Sadducees didn't believe in any kind of physical resurrection from the dead. This would have annoyed other religious leaders because Peter and John are not just teaching about a general resurrection at the end of time. They're preaching and teaching about Jesus' resurrection that has already happened. Which leads to the third and primary reason that the Jewish leaders are annoyed which is that Peter and John are preaching in Jesus' name. They are telling the people that Jesus is God's Messiah. And this is the same Jesus that the Jewish leaders had worked so hard to stop. They denied Jesus as God's Messiah. They hated Jesus and His influence. And they are the ones that ultimately put Jesus to death. So they don't want to hear this name anymore. And we need to understand, therefore, that the world's opposition to the church and to the Christian message is always, first and foremost, opposition to Jesus Christ Himself. We remember what Jesus warned his disciples. He said, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. He said, You will be hated by all for my name's sake. He said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before. It hated you. The world hates Jesus. The world opposes Jesus. So the disciples are are not arrested because they did a good work. They're not arrested because they did a miracle and these these Jewish leaders don't think the miracle actually happened. You notice throughout their examination, The Jewish leaders never question whether this lame man was healed. They believe a miracle has happened. That's not their problem. Peter and John are arrested because they are proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ as Messiah and Lord. And so Peter and John have to spend the night in jail. It was too late to convene the Sanhedrin, which was like the, the Jewish version of the Supreme Court. So they're going to wait for morning, and Peter and John are going to go on trial. And so they come before this Sanhedrin, and this is the exact same group that put Jesus on trial before his crucifixion. The rulers were the leading representatives of the high priestly class. The elders were senior Jewish officials and members of the Jewish elite. The scribes were the leading experts in the law. Luke names some of the men here because at least a couple of them will be familiar to us. Annas was the high priest before Caiaphas. And you might remember that when Jesus is first arrested, he's, he's not taken to the council first, he's taken to the home of Annas, who wants to examine Jesus. But Then Luke mentions Caiaphas, who was the high priest in those days, and he was a key figure in condemning Jesus. John is Possibly Jonathan, who was another son of Annas, who would become the high priest after Caiaphas. We don't know who Alexander was, but regardless, Luke wants us to see that the persecution Peter and John are facing is really just the continuation of persecution that Jesus faced. So just as I've argued that Acts is really the story of Christ continuing to speak and act in the world, so we see that the opposition is is just the same opposition that Jesus faced. Because what is their question? You notice when they finally gather Peter and John, they ask, by what Power, or by what name did you do this? They care about the name. They're concerned about Jesus. And we see that Peter says the, the one they're ultimately rejecting, the, the stone that the builders are rejecting, is this Jesus. You look Ahead in chapter 4. And you see that the council's command to Peter and John is, is not stop speaking altogether. But they say stop speaking in this name. The name of Jesus. Because they don't want the gospel of Jesus to spread. And if you glance even further ahead in verses 25 through 27. You see that the king that the nations are raging against. The one that the leaders of the city have gathered against is Jesus. So we need to be clear. The opposition is opposition to Jesus. It's not just to our religion. It's not just to us gathering. It's not just to us having certain moral codes. The world hates the church because the church exalts Jesus. And we may wonder... Why would the world hate Jesus? Isn't he just a a good guy? Well, the world hates Jesus for many reasons, but one of those reasons we get in verse 12, where Peter says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And if that doesn't sound so bad to us, listen again when Peter says, there is no other name. The world stands against Jesus because Jesus sits enthroned above the world. The Jesus of the Bible, the the real Jesus, is not offered... As a sympathetic psychologist, he's not offered as a wise teacher, he's not offered as a generally nice guy. No matter how much money we pour into advertising Jesus as just this really relatable dude, the Jesus of the Bible is offensive because he reveals himself as the one and only authoritative God, Lord, and way of life. You see, people don't get angry at Christians for following Jesus. If you say, I believe that Jesus is God... If you say, I believe Jesus has died for my sins, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and I am going to trust and follow Jesus, generally speaking, people aren't going to get angry with you. They won't care. They may not agree with you, but it won't upset them. They may even respond, that's wonderful for you. The problem is when we say, I believe Jesus is the one Lord and way for everybody. Not just me, but for you too. That upsets people. Then they might respond, how can you say, I need to believe in Jesus? How can you say your religion is? is the only true religion? How can you say Jesus is the only way of life and salvation? Why can't you let me believe what I want to believe and what works for me? I'm okay with you doing what works for you, but why can't you just let me do what works for me? In his book, The Reason for God, former pastor in New York City, Tim Keller quotes a 24-year-old woman living in New York City who said, it's arrogant to say your religion is superior and try to convert everyone else to it. Surely all religions are equally good and valid for meeting the needs of their particular follower." Another young man in New York City went even further to say, religious exclusivity is not just narrow, it's dangerous. Religion has led to untold strife, division, and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy of peace in the world. If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, And if other religions do this as well, the world will never know peace. The world is fine with a Jesus who offers words of comfort or good advice. The world is not okay with a Jesus who demands faith, repentance, and obedience. Because if Jesus is the only authority, it means we don't actually have authority over our own lives. And if Jesus is the only way of life and salvation, it means we might be wrong and facing judgment. And so Christianity is presented as arrogant and perhaps even Dangerous. So we need to ask, why can't Christians accept the premise that there are multiple truths, multiple ways to God, multiple ways to live a good life? Because doesn't Christianity teach humility and grace? Of course it does. But why is this a particular point that we can't say, you know I might be wrong and and you might be right? Here are two reasons Christians can't back down from this exclusivity. The first reason is because doing so would require us to embrace an entirely different faith and an entirely different Jesus. In other words, it might sound humble and reasonable to ask Christians to accept that there could be other true religions, beliefs, and ways of life apart from Christianity. But asking us to do that is actually asking us to stop being Christians. It's not actually uh, a proposition that all religions are true. It's actually saying, why can't you accept that all other religions might have truth and your religion is actually wrong? Because Christianity is built on the foundation that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Religions and philosophies make mutually exclusive claims about Jesus. If Christians are right that Jesus is God, well, then you can't truly know God apart from Jesus. But if every other religion and philosophy is right that Jesus is not God, well then we as Christians can't rightly know and follow God if if we say these things about Jesus. So the simple fact is that all religions and beliefs can't be true, even generally speaking, because they believe fundamentally opposed things about Jesus. The law of non contradiction still holds. A and not A cannot simultaneously be true. And Christianity is clear. Just as John and Peter are clear Jesus is God, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose again from the dead. Jesus is Lord, and so Jesus is the only way of life and salvation. Peter is unambiguous. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's not a negotiable or debatable claim within Christianity. That is the foundational claim of Christianity. So to give that up is to lose our faith. And it is to uphold. A different Jesus than the one we find in the Bible. To say all religions are true is to say that Christianity is a lie. It's saying you can believe in Jesus as long as you don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Because the Jesus of the Bible said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We can't be Christians if we embrace a different Jesus than that one. The Christ of Christianity is the only God, the only Lord, and the only way of life and salvation. The second reason that we cannot, as Christians, back down from these claims of exclusivity is because doing so would require us to embrace an entirely different reality. So we need to be clear at times what kind of debates, what kind of disagreements we're having. Because there are debates, there are disagreements. When where each side can have its own opinion, and no one is necessarily wrong. So, for example, people debate all the time, who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Usually it's, is it Michael Jordan? Is it LeBron James? Actually, that's a really bad example. It's objectively true that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. So, scrap that analogy. But let's say that people are arguing about their favorite restaurant or their favorite Star Wars movie. Those are subjective debates. They're disagreements about preferences. And so a lot of times when we have these religious disagreements, we think, well, it's just that kind of disagreement. It's about subjective preferences. But is that the kind of debate we're having when we discuss Jesus Christ and salvation? And I would answer, no. It's not like a friend coming up to you and asking you, what's your favorite restaurant in Kalamazoo? No, imagine instead that a friend comes up to you and says, I believe that I can fly. And they're not just singing an R. Kelly song and they're not just saying that they can get in an airplane and fly. They're telling you, I believe that if I go and I jump off this cliff, I'm going to fly. Isn't that great? It, it just makes me so happy to think that I can go and jump off this cliff, cliff and fly. But then imagine that they get really upset with you when you say... I I don't think you can fly. And they say, well, why can't you just love me and accept me when I say I can fly? We'd have to respond, because you can't fly. And if you jump off this cliff, you're going down. You're not going to soar on eagle's wings. You're going to plummet to your death. You can't name and claim Isaiah forty thirty-one. I'm gonna soar on eagle's wing. No, you're not. That's the kind of debate we're having. It's a debate about reality. Someone's saying they can fly, no matter how much they believe it, it's not going to happen. There's only one true reality and it is neither humble nor loving to embrace, to let people embrace a false reality. Especially when embracing that false reality it's not going to just lead to earthly death like falling off a cliff but it's going to lead to eternal death and damnation. And so when we compromise on this truth we have to be clear about what we're saying when we give in to this cultural this cultural pressure we're saying one of two things we're either first saying you know what side note I don't really believe there's a hell and that anybody's going there or more likely what we're saying is I don't care if you go to hell sure You you can say that all religions are true. There's multiple different ways. I don't care what happens to you. It sounds loving and humble. It is absolutely hateful. Peter and John wouldn't compromise with their opponents. They wouldn't say, Sure, you can fly. Go jump off the cliff. Their opponents asked them to stop embracing the real Jesus, which is what they would have to do if they stopped preaching about this Jesus. And they said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. We need to tell you, we need to tell the world about this Jesus because there's no other Jesus and there's no other hope of salvation apart from this Jesus. So brothers and sisters, the world will stand against Jesus, but we cannot compromise and embrace their version of who Jesus is. This would be to deny the real Jesus and it would be to functionally damn our neighbors if we stop telling them the truth. The world will oppose Christ. But the good news is that it will never overcome Christ. Many can stand against Him. Nobody can stop Him. So what was the Jewish leader's goal in arresting Peter and John? Well, if you peek ahead in verse 17, they say, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Their goal is to stop the spread of faith in Jesus Christ. And so we ask, did it work? We'll look back at verse 4. It says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now it's not clear here whether Luke means that another 5,000 in addition to the 3,000 at Pentecost believed in Jesus... Or if he's just saying, now the grand total is is 5,000. So 3,000 at Pentecost, another 2,000 here. Either way, a lot of people are still believing in Jesus. But you might say, well that happened before their arrest. Is the word still spreading after their arrest? Well, did it silence Peter and John? Again, you look ahead at verse 20, and they reply to the command to be silent, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So, doesn't stop Peter and John. Does it stop other Christians who hear about their arrest? No. We read near the end of the chapter that the other Christians gather together, they start praying, and then Luke says that they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So it doesn't stop the other Christians. And throughout the book of Acts, Luke interjects summaries like the one in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, when he says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the word of God continues to increase. And Luke even tells us some of those priests who are opposing Jesus in chapter 4, even some of them are starting to believe in chapter 6. So it doesn't work. In this fallen world, Jesus and the gospel are opposed, but never overcome. The gospel of Jesus Christ will continue to spread until the day Christ returns. What if God's people are imprisoned? What if they're ostracized from positions of power and influence? What if they're killed? Gospel's still going to spread. Because Luke always describes it, it's not the preachers, it's the word that keeps increasing. Preachers go down, he'll raise up more preachers. The gates of hell, as Jesus promised, will never prevail against the church. Because the church is the body of Christ and Christ has already overcome the world. Christ has already overcome hell and death. He's already overcome sin and unbelief. He's already overcome the devil and spiritual forces of darkness. Jesus says this in John 16, he says, In the world you will have tribulation. In other words, you are going to have trouble. You are going to have opposition. But he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. And this means that we have overcome the world. John reminds us in his first letter... Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And who's in us? The Spirit of Christ, which we're going to talk about more next week. And how have we overcome the world? Well, John again says in 1 John, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. He says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And so we clearly see that the evidence that Christ is and has overcome the world is is not evidenced in election results or regime changes or cultural shifts. The evidence is the continuing faith in Christ as more and more people believe in Him. Yes, Jesus is the one and only way of salvation. But what Acts is teaching us is the way works. Why don't we need another way? Why don't we need another name? Because the name of Jesus is more than sufficient to save every single person who calls upon it. So do we want to be saved from our sins? All we must do is call upon this name of Jesus Christ and we will be saved. Because this Jesus was crucified. This Jesus was raised from the dead. The stone that the builders rejected, God has made the cornerstone. Peter's alluding there to Psalm 118, verse 22. The cornerstone is either referring to the the first foundational stone that was set. More likely, Peter's terminology refers to the final capstone that was set in buildings in the first century. Builders would reject stones that weren't cut properly or didn't quite fit the purpose But Peter says, even though you Jewish leaders said this isn't the right stone that that God wanted, God has proven this is the stone of completion. The stone that everything was always building towards. Jesus was always the Messiah promised. He was always the Savior anointed. He was always going to be the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. So you can reject Him but God has raised him the stone is set and God's saving work is complete and so it doesn't matter what opposition we face from sin in our own hearts it doesn't matter what opposition we may face from internal conflicts within the church. It doesn't matter what opposition we face from external persecution from the world. Christ can be opposed all day every day and He will never be overcome. God's stone of completion is set and He will complete His work in us, in His church, and in the world. So what are we waiting for good shepherd, we will face opposition, and I actually believe the more that that God intends to use us effectively in ministry, the more opposition we will face the, the more trials we 're going to have within and from without I was just reading this morning in first Corinthians sixteen and Paul, writing from Ephesus, says, I'm, I'm going to stay here for a little bit longer because God has, has opened a wide door for effective work. But then he also just attaches to that, and there are many adversaries. So the wider the door, the more adversaries are coming. But we have two choices when that happens. We can be discouraged and give up saying it's too hard, or we can view all opposition to Christ as an opportunity for Christ. Because every time the gospel is opposed in Acts, it just reaches new realms of influence. What's intended to slow and stop it only ever speeds it up. And so when we are opposed because of the name of Jesus, let us take advantage of the opportunity. And This is one of my prayers for myself and for this church. I pray that we will become an increasingly joyful and evangelistic people. I pray that as visitors come into this church and we ask them, why did you come this morning? that the most common answer will soon be, because one of your members told me about Jesus and invited me to come. It wasn't just that I went onto a website when I was randomly looking for a church, but your people keep telling more people about Jesus and saying, come learn about it. Some of you are excellent at, at this, and I want to be more like you. But that's what I am praying for this church because there is one way and one door there's one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved and we can't back away from that truth but we can invite everyone we meet to walk through that door to trust in that name for the one name is for all people. And praise be to God that the stone the builders rejected, God has made the cornerstone. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you that Jesus is the way. You didn't have to make a way, but you lovingly did so. And so we pray that we would stand firmly upon the rock of Christ, that we would embrace this cornerstone, but we pray also that we would clearly keep speaking this name to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our friends, to our family, and to our own heart so that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.